You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Last episode, I told you the story of how my family's good old friend, Gabby Hayes, had a breakdown. I went in the post office to get warm, and I was tripping. There was a guy at the door trying to get in there and get that rifle, and I poked him in the face. Well, there was no face there, but there was a window. Gabby ended up breaking out the windows of a bunch of businesses on Main Street with the butt of a rifle. He was sent to a psych ward at a VA hospital 360 miles away in Sheridan, Wyoming. The whole incident got me wishing such a hospital was closer to Walden, so Gabby could have the regular, ongoing access to that kind of care before a breakdown happened. I mean, what if Gabby could have been seeing the VA therapists all along? Could it maybe even have prevented the incident from happening in the first place? From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is The Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Living in a pandemic month after month, doesn't have very many plus sides to it, let's face the facts. But there is one bright side for rural America. Telehealth is finally getting to flex its muscles. For years, there was all this lip service about how someday telehealth would bring health care into people's homes. Someday. But now that everyone needs that kind of care, including urban families, the roadblocks have started to come tumbling down. Even at the VA hospital in Sheridan, Wyoming, where Gabby went. But adjusting to technology isn't easy for older patients like him. And that's one thing that small towns have lots of, senior citizens. So Camila Kudelska took a trip to Sheridan to see how well telehealth is working for another veteran she got to know, Ron Laporto. The first time Ron Laporto realized he may need some help was when he went to the kennel to drop off his dog before a trip overseas. So I had my back against the wall, but the door was here. And another customer came, and his dog ran in to meet the other dogs and brush my leg, which startled me. And then the man came in, and he was really, really big. 
I mean, he about filled up that door. So I got startled by the dog, and then a shadow came, and I didn't realize that I was having an episode. I had my hands over my ears, and I was screaming, and I just wanted to get out of there. It was the pure flight, and I didn't know I was doing it. All I knew was I, I, it was kind of, it was like an out-of-body experience. I wanted to physically get away and stop the sound. So when we came home, my wife said, uh, what is going on with you? She said, you do this all the time. And I said, I do? And uh, that's when I knew it was pretty serious. I was jumping and covering my ears subconsciously. And the fight, there, there have been times where the trigger was so deep, it, it brought up a combination of traumas, and I was, ready, I was ready to fight in public places. Ron started looking back, and he realized his wife was right. I wasn't happy with myself. I really wasn't. And I was scared because I didn't know what I was doing, and I was taking out on my wife, and then she was having a hard time understanding, because this is all invisible. My, my alternative then was lose my wife. Ron had just recently moved from Cheyenne to Sheridan, a town of around 17,000 people. He had tried to join volunteer groups, but couldn't handle that they weren't organized like the military. So he wasn't really doing anything. Anxiety and depression started. Plus, he kept on reacting badly to situations, and it wasn't helping his marriage. You know, I'm not going to just take drugs without help. So he recommended a counselor, so I went to a counselor here in Sheridan for two years. And we made a lot of progress up until the point where she said, uh, you have post-traumatic stress disorder. So Ron started seeking help. He saw his primary physician, who gave him some meds, but he didn't want to do it alone. The first communication I had with Ron was about our connection to New York. He wrote me an email saying, I'm anxious to know if we have any common interest, as I spent 30 years living in the Hudson Valley with my wife prior to moving to Cheyenne in 2000. We are both New York natives and apparently still have an East Coast accent. You can decide whether he still has an accent or whether I do, but I totally get what he means. Raised in New York, you are always a New Yorker at heart. Ron had a little different childhood than I did. He grew up on the south shore of Long Island. So you can go to one of the state beaches and have plenty of room for a beach towel and a blanket and an umbrella. And uh, we used to listen to AM radio on a transistor, and there was a guy named Cousin Brucey. And uh, every, about every 20 minutes, he'd just say, roll over, because he knew we were all at the beach. When college rolled around, he went to a two-year college and then enrolled in New Paltz, further upstate. He met his soon-to-be wife during this time. Well, I didn't know that uh, colleges at that time, in 1970, 71, would notify the Selective Service, because I was on a college drafter firm. So 
I was in love with my girlfriend and just kind of hanging out with old friends and didn't realize I became part of the draft pool. So got my little notice in the mail. Had a very low number, and the way it worked is low numbers go first. A very low number. Do you remember what number it was? Oh, it was like four. Wow. So, so uh, I had to make a decision, you know, what was I going to do? Ron was studying conservation with his eyes set on becoming like Jacques Cousteau, a marine biologist studying the area around the Caribbean. I knew I had an obligation, and I was fine with having an obligation. I just wasn't mentally prepared to go to Vietnam, because I had been living with Vietnam since 64, over the news. And it wasn't something I wanted to do with my life. So I heard about the National Guard, which you work for the governor and you stay in your state. He figured, I'll stay close to the girl I'm in love with, serve six years, and get out. Obligation fulfilled. But it didn't work that way. He ended up enjoying his time at the National Guard, so he re-enlisted. His 13th year, he became an officer, which committed him to be a guardsman until 1996. He then went on active duty for the Guard and eventually became a full-time federal employee, retiring in 2010. You know, I know the oath by heart, and nowhere in that oath says, you know, I'll willingly subject myself to trauma for the rest of my life. You know, it's important to defend the Constitution of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That's what it says, part of it. Um, Nowhere does it say, you know, I've subjected to uh, mental illness for the rest of my life, which could lead to divorce, alcoholism, drug overdoses, homelessness. So I, I think... That should be part of the story, too. Joining the military is a lot more than, than uh, leaving your home to go to a foreign land. I am heading to Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, and it's going to be about a three-hour drive which is actually weirdly normal for this job. Um, Just traveling around Wyoming takes a lot of time to drive. And the weird thing about going to Sheridan is the fastest way is to go up and around the Bighorn Mountains, um, which means that I stay in Montana for most of the trip, um, which is interesting. Luckily for me, it's the summer, so the roads are clear and easy. But as many Mountain West residents know, when the snow starts hitting the pavement, a three-hour drive can become a four to five-hour drive, or one that isn't even passable. This really increases my anxiety in the winter. I'm always debating whether the drive is worth it, because to be honest, the roads become pretty scary. I think of veterans who live in small towns as far away from the VA as I do and whether they take the risk to see their mental health provider or just skip the appointment. I mean, is it really worth risking your life or even just worsening your anxiety to go to the doctor? But it's a hot, sunny July day, which means I don't have to worry about all of that. All right, I'm here at the Infetive Y.O. Theater, and I am meeting Ron here. Hey, Ron. 
We discuss that we feel comfortable not wearing masks outside, but when we are inside, I'll be wearing a mask the entire time. Ron says he's good with that. When we get to his house, we take our shoes off, and his golden retriever Murphy greets us happily. This is Murphy. Hi, Murphy. So this is our little uh, living room kitchen. So this is my little room. His wife comes in briefly and says hi, nice but doesn't want to be taped. Bedroom house, never having children. We each have our own space. Ron's own space is a small room, a twin bed in one corner, and shelves full of pictures of horses, books, and folders. A guitar is hanging on the wall. Ron takes a seat down on a gray exercise ball in front of a side table with his computer on it. Ron doesn't skip a beat and dives into his career in the National Guard, kind of skimming over all the different positions he had until he gets to 1984 when he became a mortuary officer in the Air Force. An, an Air Force mortuary officer is the person responsible for meeting with the next of kin to find out their wishes for what the deceased will have as far as a cemetery burial, cremation. Ron bounces slightly on the exercise ball. So that's one piece. But the other piece, the real trauma piece, is when you go to mortuary officer school in the Air Force, they basically talk about aircraft crashes. So you go through training about uh, seeing aircraft on the ground, and it's usually a burned or burned people. So you have to train for this, and it's called... Uh, search and recovery, you have a team of other assistants that walk the grid, and you literally pick up pieces and parts. In 1993, wait a minute. He looks back at a calendar on the wall as he tries to calculate when this event exactly took place. I have this forever in my mind. So in 1991, I'm sorry, um, I had taken our team for active duty training at Dover Air Force Base, Delaware. So I volunteered to work in the mortuary. And on March 13th, 1991, a second lieutenant, maybe your age, maybe even a little younger, I don't know, she was in a Russian helicopter with some of the, I'm sorry, it was an Iraqi helicopter, with um, a group of other four, uh, people, some high VIP people. He begins to rub his hands together in a fist. Well, um, we had known that helicopters in a sandy desert do not do well. They ingest the dust and they crash. Well, there were two of them. There was the one she was in and another one. And I, I, I still don't know why they took off because they, they knew dust storms were. I'm pretty sure bet you weren't going to go very far. And, uh, and they crashed. 
His hands keep on rubbing together, but now are trembling. The lieutenant arrived in what's called a shipping container. It's basically an aluminum casket, if you will. He pauses, closes his eyes, and opens them. His hands continue to shake. She was wrapped in an OD green blanket, as, as you're supposed to, and, the, and, and her remains were about maybe two foot by 18 inches. So I knew what I had to do. You take the remains out of the shipping container and you, and you place them in a casket, her in a casket, and you get a brand new uniform with all her medals and badges and ranks, and you place it over the blanket. And that was pretty tough. All of a sudden, Ron comes out of his daze and quickly checks his watch. And he realizes it's time for his telehealth session. As he turns around on his ball and opens his laptop, I'm still semi-shocked at how open he has been with me in just the last half hour and how he is able to handle his trauma. Ron has been seeing a specialist for his PTSD for a while now. It helps him handle his triggers like the one he just had. So when COVID-19 hit and the Sheridan VA closed, he knew he needed to continue his sessions, but he was hesitant about using telehealth. But my psychologist, again, she called me and she said, uh, you can't come to the office. We'd like you to try this VVC, VA Video Connect. And again, I said, I don't know anything about it. Uh, I said, I, I really don't want to sit in front of a computer for an hour. It's just not my thing. He realized it probably would be better to still have some kind of sessions with his psychologist versus the possibility of the episodes coming back. Ron opens his email. He's been using telehealth for his sessions since March, when the Sheridan VA announced it was closing its doors to the public due to COVID-19. Ron begins typing in the login information. Now it's going to that secure site, HTTPS. And this is my login page. He continues to slowly type out the basic information the Video Connect asks, and then he hits connect. My hands are actually shaking. And then where I am, I'm at home. We're in Sheridan. Oops. Jeez. My hands are shaking. I can't type. Go wide. Wait. There's a little garbled up, but it just says, waiting. wait, waiting for the host. As we continue to wait, Ron tells me he has to put down the information, like where he physically is, and contact information, because if he does have an episode and needs help, his psychologist immediately knows where to send help. And then a woman pops up on his screen. Good morning. The psychologist mouths something. I'm having trouble hearing you right now. Can you hear me? For some reason, the, the, this is the first time I've ever had static. She said she's going to log in again, is what she said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's her office. That's where I would normally be sitting, right over here. After a couple more moments of trying to figure out what's wrong, they decide to use the phone to hear each other, but stay on video so that they still can see each other. 
Sure, sure, I can see you and I can hear you fine over the phone. And I'm also gonna, going to uh, turn off my computer speaker. Okay, so yeah. if you'll just hold on for a second, I'll escort our guest out. Ron, being the gentleman he is, walks me out and we decide to meet at the house again in an hour when he'll be done with his session. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we learn more about how medical facilities are being forced to reckon with telehealth due to the pandemic. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. Take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. When we left off, Ron was having trouble getting into his telehealth session. This is the first time Ron has encountered such a problem. And later, Ron emails me and tells me it was caused by a Spectrum Charter application and that a technician fixed the problem. Technical glitches and just not being able to get the same results was some of the things Ron was originally worried about when he couldn't go into the office for his appointments. It turns out Ron's psychologist was herself a reluctant telehealth convert. So my full name is is Robin Lipke. My title, um, I am a clinical psychologist in the outpatient mental health clinic at the Sheridan VAMC. I would identify myself as a reluctant convert to VVC. Dr. Lipke has done telehealth in the past, but it was always done with an intermediary. This means an individual arrived at a clinic somewhere in Wyoming, was checked in by a nurse, and then would enter a room where there was a screen that Dr. Lipke would appear on. There was always a second set of eyes on the veteran and how they were doing. So if, you know, if something in session happened, there was somebody right there. Mm. With VVC into the home, that layer is gone. And that, that can, um, I, I think as a provider, that, that leap um, to working with people and doing some of the very difficult work of therapy um, when they're in their home, you know, there was some hesitation. But she says COVID-19 really made her realize telehealth was the best alternative, even to face-to-face with a mask on. So much of what we do has to do with how people are expressing their emotions or not. And so um, when, when my option was to not see them face to face or talk to them on the phone or talk to them via VVC, I gotta tell you, I was really thrilled to be able to see them again. Dr. Lipke says there are positives and negatives, but she definitely has found little gems that she didn't expect. For a veteran coming in, they're coming into my space. They know where they sit. Um, there's, a, there's, there's a great deal that is mine and the institutions. When I go into their home, they're in their home. They are comfortable there. And then I've had um, people who have said, or indicated in some way, demonstrated that being in their own home, they feel more comfortable about talking about certain things. Because mm. if, if, for example, there's something that is um, stressful to them, um, maybe their pet is right there with them. Mm-hmm. 
you know, maybe there's something else that um, um, is comforting or, um, you know, there's, there can, again, with trauma-informed work, one of the biggest pieces is safety um, and, and trust. And so there, there's something different about being in one's home. So because it reminded me of, of a couple of events that occurred, how people would show me things um, or do things that, that I never would see if I just saw them in my office. You know, like, let me show you, oh, here's, you know, here's, here's something that I've spoken about and m might start talking about something that, that, I, that I might not have gotten if, if we were only in the office. And this is something Ron even mentioned. At home, he can pet his dog Murphy or listen to soothing music or whatever to help him calm down. For many people, telehealth seems impersonal, but there are actually many benefits to it that have been highlighted during the pandemic. Living in Wyoming, Ron was lucky when he needed the special help the VA could provide. He was right by the VA. For others, traveling to a specialized healthcare provider or even to their general doctor can be an hour or longer, like the three-hour drive I had to take to see Ron. Can't talk healthcare and rural healthcare without talking about transportation. It's a huge issue. That's Alan Morgan. He's the CEO of the nonprofit National Rural Health Association. The farmer rancher who is remote and can't get in. Um, and that may just be because of the weather, or it may be because of, of multiple factors. Morgan says transportation issues all come from one main issue, access to health care in rural places. Rural populations have tremendous health disparities, and those health disparities can largely be traced to the fact that there's a lack of access to care. One of the main reasons is recruiting and keeping health care providers in these regions. Um, the real concern is you just can't get specialty care to live and work in a, in a rural community. Um, and, and telehealth has the potential to bridge this. You say telehealth, and most of us think of telehealth like the Jetsons, where you've got your primary care physician beaming into your room. That's what I want. We need to start realizing that, you know, you've got telebehavioral health, you've got telepharmacy, you have teleradiology, telecardiology. Um, all these have different roles and different applications, and they really need to be thought of separately. Telehealth is a tool, and that's the best way to look at it. It's a tool for expanding access to care. But this tool received lots of pushback for many reasons. First, many insurances don't cover telehealth, so it can cost more money. Facilities that use it need to invest in technologies. And then just many regulations that didn't make it easy, like not being able to use FaceTime or Skype, but a specific video program. But when COVID-19 hit, everything opened up as healthcare facilities and hospitals had to close their doors for non-essential services 
People in charge realize telehealth may be their only option to continue taking care of people like Ron, who can't have a gap in their care. You cannot um, overstate the impact, the dramatic impact that COVID has had on access to care in relations to telehealth. Uh, Once federal and state officials removed many of the regulatory barriers prohibiting that, and provided funding for Medicare and Medicaid for these telehealth services, it really opened the opportunity to enhance healthcare in a rural setting. The benefit on the patient has been dramatic. Number one, primary care, allowing physicians in rural health clinics to actually see their patients remotely. And then number two, telebehavioral health. And you've heard from policymakers both on Capitol Hill, in the White House, and also at the state level, um, indicating that they have no intention of going back to the way that we were before. I think that we are now locked into a new paradigm of how we deliver healthcare in a rural setting. During the pandemic, the Sheridan VA, where Ron's sessions are, telehealth appointments, including mental health, primary care, etc., increased by 1,116%. And the VA, as well as other healthcare institutions, don't want to stop this momentum as they believe utilizing telehealth in the future will help them provide better care for their patients in rural places. When I come back to Ron's house after his session, Ron leads me to his room where I take a seat on a small white straw chair while he sits back on his exercise ball. He doesn't want to talk about the young lieutenant anymore, but rather wants to tell me how his therapy has helped manage his episodes. He scooches himself forward on his exercise ball to a wooden bookshelf and pulls out a white binder and starts flipping through. I keep on file. Um... Everything she sent me going back, actually all the way back to my time with the the private uh, counselor, all different uh, things, uh, handouts about depression, trauma and memories, New Year's resolutions, which are really tough. Mm, Tell me about it. I I don't don't mean just keeping them. They they might be unrealistic, like I'm going to stop having PTSD. Well, that's not going to happen taking power naps, which I like to do. (laughs) As he continued to go to his sessions, Ron slowly realized different triggers, like fear. The fear is a result of military training, because I was a leader and I was in charge. So it it was a threat assessment. So we may say fear, but it's threat assessment. What's happening? How does it affect me? the people I'm with, and the mission. Right. Always doing threat analysis, situational awareness, always. And he became aware of certain events in his life that were triggers. But by becoming aware of these trigger points and going through therapy, he realized there's a way to manage the potential episodes. If somebody dropped something behind me, I would jump and I would put my hands over my ears and I'd quickly assess Am I in danger? Do I need to fight, flight, freeze, or fake dead? 
And now I can do that analysis pretty quickly. I used to get stuck. I used to freeze. That's what I was doing. I was freezing. I was stuck. Those four Fs are important to his ability to not get stuck in his reaction. Fight, flight, freeze, or fake dead. Four different ways a person can react to a trigger badly. One trigger for him is 9-11. His wife and him were in Nova Scotia one time on a tour. She says, well, I, I want to share an interesting fact with you. She said, uh, in 9-11, when 9-11 was happening, many, many airline, commercial airline flights were diverted mm-hmm. to this airport. He asked to see her privately afterwards. I said, you probably don't realize this, but when you talked about aircraft being diverted here for 9-11, I was having a panic attack. And I had a real hard time controlling myself. Uh, All I could think about was people jumping at buildings. As a New Yorker, that hit me. I knew kids whose parents did just that. This is a whole lot more than I think we wanted to get into, but... No, I mean, just for 9-11, you know, I was there. I was in the city. So it's a very... Probably to what you're saying. Yeah, you, you it's probably a traumatic PTSD event for me, and yeah, I don't yeah. even know. Exactly. Because, no, yeah. you were definitely right you on that. PTSD. Now, you're still actively engaged in your profession. You're still learning. You're still doing. But there will be a, a time when um, you're alone on a beach or up on a mountain type or hiking, and you hear something, and it just comes back. It makes sense to me. When I think about 9-11 nowadays, it's usually a quick thought or somebody realizes, oh, you grew up in New York, where were you on 9-11? And I go into what seems a little like a rehearsed story of how I was in a classroom with my teacher, waiting for my parents to pick me up, Every other kid was picked up right in the morning, but my mom arrived promptly at 3 p.m. And how I could sense something horrible had happened, but I had no idea what. It turns out they were searching for a family friend who worked right next to the Twin Towers. I never really lag on it, but Ron says ever since he's retired, just the mention of 9-11 and it brings him back. I was... uh communications officer in charge of the classified and unclassified networks. So unclassified is your typical uh, Microsoft browsers and internet. And classified is everything from top secret all the way down. Yeah, so I was responsible for both those platforms. Worked 33 straight days. Finally, finally hit the wall. Um, recovered for a little bit, and then went right back to it. And in my mind, um, never left it, really. When 9-11 comes up, he realizes it's just a memory, and he's able to control himself, not let the trigger take him to one of his bad reactions. So now I don't get stuck quite as bad. I do a quick analysis, assess the threat. It's what I've been trained to do. Am I in danger? Are people I'm responsible for in danger? 
Is there no danger? Am I imagining this? What is going on? His weekly therapy sessions are vital for him to figure these triggers out and learn how to properly react to them. He mentions that in the morning when he started shaking, talking to me about the young lieutenant, he was able to realize that it was just a memory. She's not here. She's not there. Although you look very much like her, I only saw a picture of her. The only thing I saw of her was a blanket. So I'm able to appreciate her sacrifice and what I did in an honorable manner, but it's a memory. At the moment when he says this, I kind of just nod and let him speak. But when I look back, I feel horrible that I caused a bad moment for him. But for Ron, it's a success story of his therapy. Where he has gotten from when something like this could really throw him off, to him realizing it's a memory. But his therapy sessions still ground him and help him discover new triggers. So if he didn't have telehealth as an option, he's worried that he would lose progress in his recovery. And unfortunately, many people in rural health didn't have telehealth as an option. The current momentum will hopefully change that. Mental health care saved Ron's marriage and really his life. He believes he would have fallen into some other kind of trap if he didn't seek out help. So I'm really happy where I am now with my medication and my providers, both at the VA and civilian. Um, I couldn't be doing today, involved in five organizations, volunteering, getting up at five every morning. I couldn't be doing it um, four years ago. was Camila Kudelska. And you know, it's guys like Ron who have a little easier access to this care that are figuring out how to overcome the obstacles of telehealth for those in shrinking towns all across the West. Veterans in small towns, they're out there, alone, isolated, and badly in need of this technology. But ghost towning isn't just affecting people's mental health. It's also affecting people's physical health, like basic stuff, their ability to put food on the table. For instance, my hometown of Walden. We are known as a food desert. We are one of the true food deserts in the entire state. Next time on the show, we're going to hang around up in northeast Wyoming a little longer, where a group of women is trying to figure out how to not just manage the growing hunger in small towns, but how to fix it once and for all. Hey, have you been using telehealth more since the pandemic began? If so, how's it going for you? Let us know on social media at Modern West Pod or DM me on Twitter at Melody Edwards 3. You can see photos of each episode at our website, themodernwest.org. I'm Melody Edwards. Our story editor is Aaron Jones. Our digital producer is Anna Rader. Micah Schweitzer is our executive producer. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media.
One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.